In the early days of science fiction and fantasy, there were a lot of dudes. Dude characters, dude authors, dudes everywhere. Author Anne McCaffrey broke the mold as a successful author in the genre, and mentally, the protagonist in 1976's Dragon Song was equally trailblazing. A sort of spin-off of McCaffrey's adult series, Dragon Riders of Pern, Dragon Song would ultimately be the first book in the Harper Hall of Pern trilogy, which was aimed at young adults. And we're talking all about it on episode 67 of SSR. In Dragon Song, we meet Menely, a gifted musician living in a highly patriarchal fishing village where her father is doing basically everything possible to suppress her talents for playing and writing music. These are a man's tasks, obviously. Ugh. Gross. When Menely finally gets fed up with the way her family treats her, can you blame her? She runs away from home, an especially dangerous undertaking in a fictional world where a biological substance called thread falls from the sky, threatening to burn anything it touches. Now living on her own in a cave, Menely finds a fire lizard queen trying to take care of her nest of nine eggs. Fire lizards are basically itty-bitty dragons. Menely helps the queen hide the nest from the thread, and they're bonded for life. She sets off on an adventure to protect herself and her new fire lizard friends, learning in the process that her voice does matter and that there is a place where her talents will be appreciated. Will that place be among dragon riders? In a harper's guild where she can hone her musical talents? You've got to read the book, or at least listen to this episode, to find out. A kick-ass female protagonist making her own way in a world trying to hold her down? We can dig it. Today's guest is Tui Sutherland, the author of the New York Times and USA Today best-selling Wings of Fire series, the Menagerie trilogy, and the Pet Trouble series, as well as a contributing author to the best-selling Spirit Animals and Seekers series. In case you can't tell from that bio, Tui is clearly a lover of all animals, real and mythical alike, so I can't think of a better person to talk dragons with. Fun fact, in 2009, Tui was also a two-day champion on Jeopardy. She lives in Massachusetts with her husband, two awesome sons, and two very patient dogs. You can learn more about Tui's books at tuibooks.com. That's T-U-I-Books.com. Thanks so much to Tui for sharing her love of Anne McCaffrey's books with me in this episode. I think you'll be able to tell before too long how formative Dragon Song and its companion titles were in her life and career. And I promise you that her excitement is totally infectious even if you've never read the book or aren't sure if it's your thing. SSR's Patreon supporters have been formative in my podcasting life, and I hope that my excitement about their contributions is infectious too. Thanks to each and every one of you tuning in. If you'd like to join the ranks of Patreon by contributing just a few dollars to SSR per month in exchange for some exclusive rewards, visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast to learn more. You can also go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. If you want to support the podcast but aren't totally sure that Patreon is the right move for you, no worries. You can also check out our merch shop at www.ssrpodcast.com slash shop to pick up your very own SSR bookmarks, t-shirt, or tote bag. Another option is to leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes. Listeners, I know I plug this every week, but having those ratings and reviews really does make a big difference to SSR's discoverability. If you love the show and haven't left one yet, I'd love if you would consider it. Another, and maybe the easiest way to support SSR, is to engage with the show on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. I keep pretty busy with the SSR Instagram feed, so that's a great place to get involved in the conversation. I love seeing you tagging the episodes you're listening to in your Instagram stories. One more thing before we get started. Have you checked out Libro.fm yet? If you haven't, you totally should. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. We have our next round of travel coming up in the next few weeks, including a trip to Thailand that includes many hours of plane time, and I'm excited to stock my Libro.fm library with lots of titles to listen to while we're on the go. I was going to make a joke here about listening to Libro.fm while taking a journey by dragon, but I think I'll skip it. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, 
Tui. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me here. Listeners, I have to tell you that Tui currently has her very cute dog sitting on her lap. So if I get distracted or mention something about a cute dog, it's because I'm looking at one. I am obsessed with your little pup. Oh, thank you. Hopefully he won't try to join the conversation, but uh, he likes to sit and listen with the rest of us. So <laughs> He looks like he might have a lot to say about Dragon Song. You never know. It's true. Once I start raving about fire lizards, he'll be like, excuse me, I'm cuter than they are. Pay attention to me. He's going to be asking you for one any day now. He wants a pet fire lizard. I think he needs a little sidekick. Oh my god, that would be amazing. <laughs> the cutest. So... Clearly, we are talking about Dragon Song by Anne McCaffrey. Some quick facts. It was published in March of 1976. It has a pretty cool publishing history that I discovered while I was preparing to chat with you today, Tui. So I can get into that a little bit in a few minutes. But before we start talking, I'd love to share a little bit more about why you wanted to talk about Dragon Song and kind of your history with this book. Maybe the first time you read it, what you loved about it, and what inspired you to circle back now. Sure. It's interesting. Actually, I was a little worried when we picked this one because I wasn't sure if you would like it because it means so much to me, this book. Like, it was a huge part of my childhood. I read the whole series, starting with these books. I read Dragon Song, Dragon Singer, and Dragon Drums, which are her younger trilogy. And I think I must have been pretty young because I feel like it was when I was living in Paraguay, so like fourth or fifth grade. But it might have been when we moved to Miami, which was like sixth grade. Okay. And so after I read those three, I went on to read the whole rest of the books. And it's funny because I'm not sure. my I think my mom might have read these three and was like, oh, yeah, these are appropriate for children and then never checked in again because they get, like, if you keep reading all of Anne McCaffrey's stuff, there's a lot that's really not appropriate for kids. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, which is which was really kind of probably fun for a sixth grader to discover. It'd be like, like I'm getting sure. away with it. <laughs> well, that was the great thing about being a reader, at least in my experience, is that, like, it was much easier to get away with reading books that my parents wouldn't approve of than like watching movies or TV that they wouldn't approve of. So I totally understand where you're coming from there. Yeah. Well, and what's really funny is that my mom was actually kind of, she would, she would kind of uh, like ban certain books in the house. Like she didn't want me reading some of the like uh, really silly things like Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High, which like I got to read later in life and was like, what was wrong with this? <laughs> Um, and then also V.C. Andrews. My friends were all in a V.C. Andrews phase, and my mom was like, absolutely not. Um, so I think that the fact that there were the books that she could recognize as being like what she thought was inappropriate versus the ones that I was getting away with, I think was also kind of probably fun for me. Although I don't know how much I knew what was going on right. in those in those scenes. <laughs> but yeah, so these books, I really love them. And it's funny about Dragon Song, because when we started talking about it, or about reading it again, I tried to remember when I last read it, because I'm not much of a rereader. Like, I don't reread very often. There's only a couple of books probably from my childhood that I've read again, but I had a feeling this was one of them. And I went back and checked right before this, and it was 2010 was the last time I read this book. And my notes at the time were like, yeah, I still love it. So that <laughs> was reassuring because actually this time I was like, am I still going to love it? Will I? After I, I talk about this book at some of my events, people are always like, what's your favorite book from when you were a kid? And I, I, I mentioned this one. So I'm reassured that I still liked it. <laughs> it is scary to come back. Clearly, I have been burned by that several times, but more often than not, <laughs> it is satisfying. So I'm glad that it seems to have held up. I will say that in addition to a very cute dog that I'm looking at, in Tui's Skype frame right now. I also see your Wings of Fire decals on the wall behind you. So I can definitely see some seeds of your future career in Dragon Song. I was not a stranger to Dragon Song. So first of all, don't feel bad for making me read this book because I had read it as a kid, actually. (laughs) I hope that allows you to breathe a sigh of relief. I remember that my aunt really encouraged me to read this book. She was super into high fantasy She was a really big reader when she was a kid and also as an adult, and so that was something that she and I really bonded over. And I remember that, like, through my elementary and middle school years, she had always been pushing me to read Dragon Song, and she would always talk about Pern and, like, the Harper Hall trilogy, and I didn't know what those words meant. And then (laughs) at a certain point, I I would guess maybe, like, late middle school, she finally was like, okay, now, but really, you have to read the book. And so I read Dragon Song. I think I probably grabbed a copy of it and brought it to the beach one summer. It feels like a book that I would have read on summer vacation and it was unlike other books that I was into at the time I'd been more into fantasy when I was in elementary school just because I was like very into kind of tearing through all the series that I could find at my school library at the time so it had been a while since I read a book like this and this is such a richly detailed world and so it felt like a departure from other fantasy books that I read as a kid 
But I liked it. I would be lying if I said it was like one of my favorite books as a kid, but it's definitely one that I remember. And so when we made the decision to read this book for today's episode, I was like, oh, of course. Like I hadn't thought about that one in a while, but I do remember pretty clearly the experience of reading it because it was something that I then connected with my aunt about. And I think as a kid that read a lot, it was always really fun to have somebody in my family like kind of push a book on me because A, it gave me something to add to my reading list because I always felt like I needed more things. And also it was nice to have somebody recognize that like this was something that I cared about and something that we could then talk about together. So that's the part of this book that really sticks out in my mind. And I was anxious to get back to it just because I remember that sort of like, I I felt um, almost this like obligation to read it for my aunt. And I was anxious to see how it would feel like to come back to it as an adult kind of of my own volition. And also just like knowing the kind of pop culture consumer that I've become as an adult. Confession, I have never watched an episode of Game of Thrones. And so (laughs) I feel like I'm still kind of out of this whole dragon culture. So again, I was anxious to be like, okay, how am I going to feel about this as an adult? But I think you'll find this interesting. When I started posting pictures of the book to my SSR Instagram stories, a bunch of people were like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited that you're doing Dragon Song. So you're not the only one that has fond memories of this. And I'm sure that a lot of the people listening right now are very excited to hear more about your thoughts. So that's so nice to hear. Yeah, I actually just talked my book group into reading it. We read children's books together. So I I brought it up because I was like, well, I'm reading it for the podcast. And does anyone want to read it with me? And there were there was at least one other person in the group who was like, oh, I remember where I was when I read that book and how much it meant to me. So that made me really happy too. So I'm hoping the rest of them like it. I guess we'll see. (laughs) I guess we will see. I will say my first observation is, and this happens to me a lot for the podcast. I remember being so long as a kid. Like I remember it being this like undertaking. And I think part of it was I read it as a mass market paperback edition and I got just like a trade paperback for this time around and excuse any um paper shuffling listeners but I'm looking this copy is 186 yes this pretty cover which is not as great I like the old one better but yeah the one that was like where it was a little more sort of clint looking where she's like surrounded by them yeah I really like that one too yeah but this one is only 186 pages and so my first thought was like okay I was so dramatic as a kid to think that like this book was so long and I was so accomplished to have finished it. But again, it's all in your perspective. And so um, it was in terms of just kind of like length. It was like more manageable for me as an adult. So I've become <laughs> a stronger reader. What were your other first impressions as you started to get into the book? Well, I actually, it's interesting because I wonder if one of the reasons it felt long to you is this foreword because the foreword is, oh my gosh, so dense. And I can easily see this turning people off. It's like a little sort of explanation of sort of the science fiction side of the series. What's Threadfall and like, how does it relate to the planets all connected to each other? And I was like, oh no, <laughs> what have I done to poor Allie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you, Tui. I had a minute where I was like, maybe Tui could just walk me through the book. And i it's funny because sometimes I do have that thought where I'm like, maybe it's okay if I'm not in love with a book for the podcast to give it my best shot and then admit it. And I did finish this book, so nobody panic. And Tui, please do not feel bad. But that is a thought that I've had. So listeners, I'm curious what you would think. Like if I were to give some other book in the future, like a good faith effort, and I just felt like I couldn't do it, is that enough of a conversation? Provided, of course, that the guest has like a special connection to the book. So I, anyway, I actually was a little bit intimidated by the foreword. And I think, again, part of it is that I'm at this point in my life, like not a huge high fantasy reader. So just like the structure and like these words and these worlds, like all of these different things to keep track of, I was like, oh, I just hope that I can keep track so that we can have a really good conversation <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think, you know, it's all it's all relevant to the sort of world, but I, I I kind of feel like you don't need to read the foreword. You could kind of figure it out going in because I think certainly like finally when the book starts at chapter one, like I feel like Menely is such a, a lovely character that once you start getting more into her perspective, it, it picks up a lot. And then of course, when she meets the fire lizards, I feel like that's when the whole book takes off and is like, oh no, this is why it's special. Like um, towards the end, it was like making me cry all over again. <laughs> it's interesting because I'm sure you found this in researching the publishing history. She'd written the, uh, the first adult book, Dragonflight, and then I I don't know if Dragon Quest was actually published before this one or which one she had finished writing first, but you can see how much they're connected. And I definitely, I, I, I don't know, I think of my, my Wings of Fire books as sort of an introduction to high fantasy for kids where I'm trying really hard not to, like I want there to be a full world with like a lot of history there, but I'm trying not to confuse them too much. Like I would never do a forward like this. Yeah. <laughs> Because 
I'm like, come meet some characters and then I will spring all the history on you. <laughs> right. So it's interesting. But I feel like she, you know, had this whole, she had this really complex, like, idea of this world in her head. And so she, you know, needed to kind of explain a lot of it in order to get you into the rest of the story. But I think that, I don't know, I feel like if you just met mentally, that would also sort of bring you in, um, maybe without the rest of it. I don't know. It's hard for me, though, to separate it because I knew all of that stuff already. <laughs> So what I found in terms of the publishing history, since you brought that up, and I do think it's really interesting and it's unlike anything else that I've read for the podcast before. So I will touch on that before I share additional thoughts on the forward. The book, as you mentioned, what I found was that it's the third book in the Dragon Riders of Pern series. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm sure you know more about this than I do, is that Anne McCaffrey was already a really well-established science fiction author in the mid-70s. And these Dragon Riders of Pern books were doing like Okay, and then this third book, Dragon Song, came out, and she had this editor who was like, you know what would be really cool if we kind of spun off of this book, Dragon Song, and targeted younger people, especially young girls, because this book had clearly this like badass female character. And I think this was probably around the time when editors and the publishing industry in general was realizing that like young adult books should be more of a thing. Like I think there had been this movement of books for kids for years, obviously, but YA as a genre did not always exist in the way that it does today. And so in the 80s and in the 90s was finally when editors are starting to recognize a need for kids to have something to read, like once they'd finished The Hobbit or Wizard of Oz. And so I think they realized that this might be a good series to give that a try on. So Anne McCaffrey then went on to write the Harper Hall trilogy, which started with Dragon Song, and then there were two other books that came after, and she then didn't go back and circle back to the original series, The Dragon Riders of Pern, until after she finished the YA series. Does that sound right to you? Uh, mostly, yeah, okay. I think so. Although I think that Dragon Song, I think she had written Dragon Flight, which is the first one in the Dragon Riders series, and she was working on Dragon Quest, which is the second one, okay. when an editor from like a, the children's imprint like contacted her, or the young adult children's imprint, and said, like, we really think that this would be a great idea. Like, can you do like a version of this, but for young women? Yeah, like you said, that would be, you know, that we could publish as a young adult book. And so then she, I think she kind of put Dragon Quest on hold to write Dragon Song and the the other two books in the Harper Hall trilogy. Um, and then you're right. Yeah, I went back to the Dragon Writers. And I don't know, I think Dragon Quest might have been published before this one, but I think she was kind of writing them side by side, which is why there's so much in the Bend and Weir scenes where they are, where you see the stuff that's happening in Dragon Quest going on in the background. Like, because clearly I think Anne McCaffrey had all that in her head and she was like, well, if she's there, then of course she's going to run into Lessa doing this and Miriam doing that. And like Miss Master Harper Robinson involved in all this other stuff and Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> so she had funny. all these and different worlds yeah. colliding. Yeah, absolutely. And as a kid, I don't know that I noticed how much else was going on in the background or how, or I wonder if I did. And that's what made me want to read the whole rest of the series. Cause I was like, Ooh, I want to know about Jackson. And you can tell that there's a whole story there. But I wonder like if for someone just reading this, book alone would they be like wait what happened to that story what's what's going on out there you know so yeah I'm kind of curious about that and it does kind of make me want to go read the white dragon again and remind myself of everything that happened in that one I do um, think it's interesting like I just don't know that I've ever come across or been aware of a book like this that sort of lived at the intersection of multiple series in this way and obviously like yeah. you hear of spin-off series and like all of these other kinds of sub-series and you know, this is not like a brand new idea we do see that sometimes but I just think it's neat that this book in particular is like right there at the intersection of these multiple series, one that was intended for adults and one that was intended for young adults. Um, yeah. So shout out to Anne McCaffrey, although sadly she did pass away several years ago. Shout out to her memory for yes. really being like a pioneer in a genre that I think a lot of readers, especially young readers, kind of take for granted now. Yeah, I think that's really true. And like sort of bringing like feminism to science fiction and, and, and yeah, kind of transforming it. It is interesting because I feel like someone reading the adult books who like didn't read these three would really be missing out. You know, I could see someone being like, oh no, no, I don't read children's books <laughs> and skipping over the Harper Hall trilogy. And I really feel like they add so much. Like I almost feel, I mean, I read Dragonflight in 2011 and my notes on that one are like, huh, this is weirder than I remember. <laughs> um, whereas this one, every time I go back to it, I'm like, no, I, I do love this book. And I sort of feel like the, the pressure of trying to write like a more focused story based on one girl actually made the book like one of the best ones in the whole series. So I hope people who've read the adult books will, will, will read these ones too. It is very focused. And what I'll say about kind of transitioning from the foreword into the actual meat of the book, because I kind of already like betrayed myself on 
how I struggled a little bit with the forward is that once I sort of was able to isolate mentally as a character and as somebody that, that doesn't read a ton of science fiction or fantasy as an adult, I think sometimes what works for me is is to like strip away a lot of the complexities of the world and focus on the people and like the motives and the families and the relationships because those are the kinds of stories that I tend to read as an adult. I, t- I tend toward like just a contemporary fiction, especially you know, with lots of great characters and great character dynamics. And so I have read several high fantasy or science fiction books for the podcast. And as listeners know, it it is sometimes hard for me to cut through like the world building as amazing as I know it is because I want to understand what's going on. And so for me, as soon as I was like a couple of pages in, I was like, okay, great. Mentally, she's stuck in this like really patriarchal society. She has this horrible dad. She has a passion for music that nobody's letting her follow. She's just lost this amazing mentor. She's like trying to figure out her place in the culture that's like so focused on tradition and like gender roles and all these things and once all of that crystallized for me I was like okay got it totally into it (laughs) yeah I I, yeah I totally agree I think that um yeah once you it is such a family story it is such a like coming of age like girl needing to find her own way and like find people who appreciate her you know um which she clearly couldn't at the hold and it was interesting because rereading it I kept thinking, like, when is she going to leave? Like, she needs to get out of there. Like, I, I I, feel like as a kid, I remember it happening a lot sooner. That, like, the minute, like, her dad was awful to her, she was like, I'm out of here. But it's not, you know? It takes her a few more chapters. I, I found it really satisfying, like, when she finally did leave and was like, oh, I'm not going back. And I was like, you don't have to. Keep running, girl. You're the best. So, I don't know. I did find that. I, I just really loved rereading that section of her, like, finally deciding to leave. Well, the first time she goes away, I kind I think I actually made a note in the margin that was like, oh, she's running away. Like, this is the time that she runs away. But then she actually comes back before she really runs away. And I think that really helps build the tension. And again, like, because I thrive on, like, the relationships and the conversations and the tension that's built within the family, I was kind of happy that we had a couple more chapters back at the hold, which, you know, I'm sorry, mentally, because, like, that was more time for you to be miserable. But I thought that in terms of just, like, building that tension for when she actually did go away, that was really effective. That's true. And it also reinforces, like, why she shouldn't, like, later on when they're, like, do you want us to tell your your family that you're safe? And she says, no, that's, you know, as a parent, I was like, oh, but they're going to be worried. And then I was like, no, they don't deserve to know. Like they weren't that worried. They didn't even send out a search party for her. So yeah, I agree. I think building up that much of the sort of terribleness of her situation makes it feel all the more satisfying when she finally does leave. So setting the scene a little bit more specifically for listeners who need a refresh or have not read Dragon Song, Menely is the youngest daughter of Yanis, who is like the man in charge of what's essentially like a fishing village, although they call it the half-circle seahold. And they live in this fictional world of Pern. Again, there's all of the geography of that is explained in the foreword, and I don't think we need to get into that because I'm going to get very confused. But Manali has this very interesting and like impressive talent for music that nobody in her family has cultivated or respected or nurtured or anything. And largely the reason that she's so connected with this talent is because she has been helping the master harper, the harper of the Seahold, and his name was Pet Iron, I believe. Do you think that's how we pronounce his name? We'll say that, Pet Iron. Yeah, that sounds fine. <laughs> and as we meet Manali in the first few pages of the book, Pet Iron has just died. And so she is mourning this man who has really been a father figure to her, but more than that, he's been a mentor to her and like teaching her everything that he knows about music. What's interesting about this particular world of Pern is that while, yes, everybody in Manali's village is really interested in catching fish as a livelihood, they're also really interested in like arts and culture and education. And so they have this whole really interesting um, system around like people who are very talented are then sent off to like a hall to learn the craft. And so that's kind of the goal if you're somebody who has a talent like Manalise is to be able to like nurture that craft further. But because she's a girl, that's not going to be allowed. I pulled out what felt like, I mean, I could have pulled out more, but I pulled out countless quotes just from those first few chapters of people just like disrespecting her or pointing mm-hmm. to the fact that like she's stuck in this terrible situation simply because of the gender that she was born into. So here's one. 
Pat Iron had said, one in 10 hundred have perfect pitch. Were you only a lad, there'd be no problem at all. And her mother says, behave yourself while you stand in a man's place. And there's just sort of like a third person passage that says, Menelie was only a girl, too tall and lanky to be a proper girl at all. It galled him to have to admit that, unfortunately, she was the only person in the entire half-circle seahold who could play any instrument as well as the old harper. And that's coming from her father, who just hates her um, and is really trying to like ignore her talent and kind of channel all of her creativity and spunk and personality and, and intelligence into these like more traditional female roles. And he's pretty violent in the way that he does that. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's interesting because they, you know, I think that in the other books you see that it is sort of an old fashioned society, but this particular hold is, um, they note that it's more patriarchal and more conservative than really anywhere else on Pern. And then especially later when she starts meeting other people at other weirs and they realize her talent and they start saying things like, oh, that's that's such an old-fashioned way of thinking. Like, the world is changing and we can fix this for you. Like, it's, it is interesting because she was writing, you know, in the 60s and 70s when the world was changing, but this was still, like, a very big deal. I think she really wanted to explore the idea of, like, strong women and, like, breaking out of your gender roles. And she does that in all the books, but I feel like this is the one where it's the most successful for me anyway. <laughs> I think it's really interesting too that she chose she chose as the talent or as the career that like really is so divisive like you can only have this career you're only supposed to have this talent if you're a man she chose something that is so simple and so inherent to people yeah. singing you know having a good <laughs> like ear so for provably music. wrong it's like, so it's provably so- wrong right I mean I feel like I've read other books written around this time period are kind of written with a similar intent of trying to show people like how ridiculous it is to put people in these boxes. And a lot of times in those books, the dividing line was around things like sort of brute physical strength, which again, you know, I think that's provably wrong in a lot of cases, but is sort of like the stereotypical way around these conversations but something like singing (laughs) it's just so ridiculous I mean we know as readers now I'm sure readers knew in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s like there are so many women and young girls who are beautiful (laughs) singers and and talented songwriters and so I think it's interesting that Anne McCaffrey chose as her kind of like dividing line like it's singing it's music and I also think like so many people can appreciate music and I think a lot of people secretly wish that they were musical and so I think for a lot of reasons her choice of music as Menelie's talent was an interesting one. Yeah, I wonder if that's partly because she had already set up this world where she, in Dragonflight, it's about a, a young woman, you know, impressing a queen and becoming a dragon rider. And that big change, you know, where like they had all these male dragon riders, but the women didn't really do the same thing that the men did. And then she had created this, like, around that world, the Harper situation, where there, she, I think she introduces Master Harper Robinson in the adult series first, before you meet him here. So she already had this world of where music was really important and it's like how they pass along their, their you know, legends and epic tales. And so maybe when she was looking for something to base Menelie's character on, that was what occurred to her for that reason. Because she's like, oh, what do I have in this world that's really important? And it's interesting because I usually actually don't like books about music. Mm-hmm. I find books about music really hard to connect to because I'm, I love music, but I'm not very talented. <laughs> I'm like not a great singer. And I always find it hard to read descriptions of music. I think it's a very like weird and difficult thing to convey. But for some reason, this one worked for me when it when it talks about her coming up with the little tunes and imagining like watching the fire lizard dance and then matching a song to it I thought that I could really imagine that her doing it and I thought it was really well done I agree things really take a turn back at home for her when she is like stepping up to try to help and fill in for pet iron because basically they're waiting for a new harper to be assigned to their village because that order has to be handed down from the master harper who you mentioned is named robinton and we're not talking about like cell phones here like there's somebody going on a (laughs) boat to tell master harper that pet iron has died and then they're going to have to wait for somebody to come back on a boat with the assignment and potentially with the new harper so they're all kind of thinking that it could be like years before a new person is assigned and so Menelie's father super reluctantly I think is like whatever like just if you would need to be the one to step in and help and again I think it's interesting that like this world values music and arts and education so highly that it's like well we have got to figure out a way to teach these kids music like stop the presses we need to find a way and that's unfortunately something that has been lost like in our own culture like you know and that's a whole 
political discussion about the loss of <laughs> arts in schools, but that's certainly not the mindset of this particular community. They really want to make sure that their students are constantly learning about music and art. Right now, they don't want to waste any time. Yeah. Well, it almost feels like that's the only schooling they have. Mm. It's very music-based. Like, everything they're learning about history, they learn through music. Everything they learn about, like, all the stories of their culture um, comes through music. So I feel like, I think that's why. They're like, if the if she doesn't take over briefly until the new Harper comes, then we just have no school. And, like, our children are, will become uneducated and will be, you know, Ben and Weir will be disappointed in us. So, it, yeah, that's where he's, like, struggling with it. But I do, yeah, that's true. I like that, that she, that it's so important to them. Yeah. But he <laughs> draws the line, like, she cannot sing her own songs. That's yeah. the limit. So he's like, if you want to teach the kids our songs, our traditional songs, that contain, as you mentioned, to eat our history and, like, all of these other important things that you need to know, fine. I'll turn a blind eye. I won't think about it too much. But as soon as you start tuning, as they call it, like that's the way they describe her just kind of like making up her own songs and humming them to herself, we can't have that. And unfortunately, he does catch her tuning one day when I believe she's teaching a group of students. There's a pretty graphic scene of him basically like strutting up to her with a whip and publicly punishing her for disobeying him. And just the way that Anne McCaffrey describes the pain that Menelie is in after, it's really hard to read, especially knowing that like she thought she was doing a good thing. She's just trying to express herself. This is her father doing this. I think she feels like she's constantly cast aside by her family. Like there's a few scenes where it just seems like she's constantly anticipating them, accusing her of doing something wrong. She feels like people are always looking for her to do something wrong and so she's so sensitive to their judgment and to not only have him judge her but then to be so public in his admonition of her in a brutal violent way it's really it's pretty dark to read yeah I mean he does send the kids away actually oh he does okay when he beats her but um but it is it's awful this is definitely my least favorite scene in the book and it is and you know and it it reinforces the unfairness of it and how harsh he is with her um which I think comes back again later when he's like he decides not to search for her after she's gone missing and it's especially hard now as again as a parent thinking like of the way they, that he treats his kid and even the way the mother treats her. That's They're, even harder, I think, is the mother relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's an implication sort of late in the book that her mother deliberately let her hand heal wrong um, so that she wouldn't, when, when mentally cuts herself and it gets infected, and they manage to save the hand. But it's interesting because in the time that mentally is unconscious um, and it's infected and they're trying to help her, I didn't get that impression that Mavi was deliberately like letting the hand heal wrong. And it only comes up later as Menelie's looking at it, I think that her mom was lying to her about the fact that she, you know, her mom didn't tell her that she missed the tendons and then it would probably be okay. But I don't think that her mom, I'm not sure I, I, I completely follow that her mom actually like let it heal wrong so she wouldn't be able to stretch it the way she used to. That's like really awful. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty hard to read too because she realizes it later on when she's at Bend and Weir and she's realizing like there maybe is a way for it to heal. And the whole section after she's gotten this infection and her hand isn't healing properly that's again like very difficult to read because she's just gone through all of this like judgment from her family and she's fighting so hard for the right to fill in for pet iron she's clearly the only one qualified and she's so passionate about it and it's just there's endless obstacles to her doing this and now she has like this physical obstacle because it seems to her that she can't actually use her hand to play instruments um and i pulled out this quote that was really sad her last conscious thought was of misery of being cheated of the one thing that had made her life bearable she knew now what a dragonless rider must feel and that's what she's thinking about as she's passing out from the pain of this injury but you're right we do find out later that there's this implication like maybe her mom didn't do everything that she could have done to save her hand because I guess we're meant to believe that her mom is this champion healer who can like make anything better I Mm -hmm. kind of did buy into it though I thought that her mom was that mean and just the relationship with her mom kind of like backing up everything that her dad said and I just, I mean, we didn't get this very much explicitly, but I kind of got this sense that, like, her mom would do anything for the boys in the family and, like, worship the sons, 
but was very quick to brush the daughters aside. And it just almost felt to me like Menelie's parents were so fed up with Menelie's, like, kind of, as they saw, disobedience and her inability to set her talents aside that, like, it was almost like she was ready to do anything to shut her down. And that's a terrible thing, but I bought it. Yeah, I do. I guess I, I, I thought that she was was lying to her because she was hoping the fact that, you know, if she couldn't use her hand again, then there was a way to avoid all the arguments and be like, well, you just can't play anymore. Yeah. Now I have solved this problem. I'm just, I'm not sure that, I think that maybe she just wasn't as great a healer as um, mentally, like, had always believed, because she's the only one there. So Mentally's like, of course my mom can heal anything. But when she gets to the better healers later in the book, I think that maybe they just, like, she just really didn't know about how to, like, teach her how to stretch it. And also, obviously, wasn't a priority for her. But yeah, no, I agree. She's a pretty terrible mom. <laughs> it's, and it's very upsetting to read, because poor Mentally. There's actually a scene later in the book, and this is the kind of scene that I really love in books like this, where Mentally's at Bend and Weir, and they've, you know, she has her nine fire lizards which is the best thing ever and all the people are trying or I think she's gone to it's right after she's gone to help to Gellin, I'm gonna say, um, stick up the 31 like unhatched fire lizard eggs and bring them back. And they and the, all these women surround her in the kitchen and they're like, "What were you doing? This poor child is so tired." And they let's get her some new clothes. And they're all fussing over her and taking care of her. And then one of the women says, "You know, ask her how old she is." And she's like, "I'm 15." And the woman sounded disappointed. She's like, "Oh well, I guess you won't need much more fostering, but we'll see what the head woman has in mind for you. I'd like you as mine." And mentally bursts into tears. And I was like, "Yes, that." moment where suddenly like she's really wanted you know she they appreciate her just the way she is and and I think there's a lot of books like that the like sort of, I think I feel like a lot of the orphan trope in stories like this is so that we can get to a moment like that where it's like you had nobody or you had somebody terrible but like the, the terrible guardians that are in so many of these books are so that we can later on get to that moment of like but here's someone who loves you and wants you and it's such an emotional release I think for kids you know even kids who are like wanted and loved <laughs> Totally. I love that scene also. And if I'm not mistaken, that particular woman was also described as like beautiful and glamorous in a certain kind of way. And that's in such contrast to the way that I at least pictured Menelie's mom, who's like this really hardworking wife of like the master fisher of the village and has all these kids and kind of seems to be like, you know, her whole job in life seems to be sort of like following her husband's orders and keeping people in line and like cutting fish and healing people. And so you don't get the sense that she has that sparkle and not, of course, we're not (laughs) saying that like a physical superficial kind of sparkle is all that's important but I do think in a book like this where we don't get that very much like when there's a character that's even described for a second as beautiful or like glamorous you're like oh we're supposed to pick up on that and I think that was important to Menelie to see that there was this other woman who maybe represented something different than what she came from who might be interested in taking her in and and being an advocate for her yeah absolutely and um and letting her be like a strong woman I think also Menorah is such a strong character and you can tell that she like orders all the dragon riders around and is um and obviously Lessa when she meets her too it gives her these role models that are so different from her from the mom who just does whatever the dad says or um the other the other women that she knows back at the hold. Yeah, I think that's true. Although, you know, when you when you say that about the glamorous women, the first person I think of is um, Lady Coulter the, from The Golden Compass. Yes. And I feel like that's a subversion of it where you're like, oh, look, she's like beautiful and glamorous and she wants Lyra, but then she can't be trusted. Spoiler alert. Beauty can be <laughs> deceiving. Right. Oh, that's, that's an interesting sort of like development of that sort of thing, character thing to find in a book. Yeah, beauty's not everything. Right. <laughs> You've mentioned the fire lizards, but we like it's time we actually talk about them because this book is called Dragon Song. We've talked about the song, but we haven't talked as much about the dragons. The fire lizards are like teeny little cute little baby dragons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Menelie finally, as you said, like finally runs away from the hold. She's had it. She's sick of being embarrassed by her parents. She's sick of the rules. She's sick of not being able to like let all of her sparkle fly. And she runs away. She's identified that there's this cave out by the sea. As I I think I mentioned earlier, she had like kind of wandered away earlier. Um, And then she goes back to the hold. And then when things get bad again, she is like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gone this time. Because the new Harper has arrived and it's become abundantly clear to her that like she's 
out of a job. You know, she's not actually going to be able to fulfill this secret goal that she had. Like, I think there was a part of her that kept thinking, like, well, maybe they'll change their mind. Like, maybe the new Harper isn't going to show up and they're really going to need me and I'll actually be able to do this. Or when he does show up, he'll come with those songs that her old Harper sent and he'll be like, where is that person? And he'll and he'll be willing to teach her again and she'll have a Harper connection. But then her mom won't even let her sing like with the rest of the town, like in the hold that night. Right. And I think that is sort of a, she's like, oh, wow, not only are they taking my, this like job away, but they're taking away all music. Like I'm not gonna be able to do anything because they think I'm such a disgrace, which is so sad. So sad. So all of is gone and she's like, screw this. I'm gonna run away. I'm gonna go to the cave. When she gets to the cave, she sees this like little lizard queen and they start to interact and there's this like really a upsetting description of the queen like basically like trying to rescue her eggs mm-hmm. and she can't carry them well wait so that's actually the first time she runs away oh the is it okay yeah the first okay. time she leaves she meets the queen whose eggs are being covered by the tide yes and she's so. trying to get her eggs to safety and mentally helps her and then the second time she comes back she just tries to hide in that same cave because she sees that thread is coming which is the for people who don't know the series or anything about pern thread is this sort of like alien spores that fall from the sky and will destroy anything or Organic that they touch and only dragon fire can destroy it or the ocean if it falls in the ocean so she sees it coming and she knows she get, needs to get to shelter so she runs to where she knows the fire lizard queen was and she gets there just as the eggs are hatching oh my god this is my favorite part of the book <laughs> so it's very cute like there's these little teeny little dragons and as i said not a game of thrones girl not always like up on what's cool with dragons but this was a really cute scene mm-hmm. totally where she they all they hatch out of their eggs and then they start to leave the cave and then she realizes they're going to get hit by the thread if they go out there and it's super dangerous and she happens to have food with her because she was planning to bring it to the fire lizards anyway it's these they, they call them spider claws i think they're crabs <laughs> yeah i think it's something crustaceous Oops, i don't know yeah <laughs> and so she kind of dumps them out and starts feeding them to all the fire lizards. And that's how she ends up what they call impressing the, the certain fire lizards that become connected to her because she fed them by hand. But she saves all these little tiny fire lizards, these like little baby dragons by feeding them um, right when they are uh, all hatching and all about to go out into the danger. And she like blocks the doorway and is like, no, stay in here where it's safe. And it's so heroic. But like, I feel like Menely is not someone who is sort of rebelliously, openly heroic. I feel like she's just quietly doing the right thing heroic and that's one of the things I love about her like she's she never seems to be thinking about herself or about the world as a big gigantic thing that needs to be saved when she does this stuff she's just like a good person you know and she sees all these fire lizards in danger and she saves them it's so awesome (laughs) I think she like also just likes to feel useful and that's something that I connected with that in her character because I'm somebody that does very well when I feel needed and when there's responsibilities and I think part of that maybe comes from Manalee's upbringing like she is from this hold where everybody has a job and there's so much value placed on like what you're contributing which you know Mm -hmm. I think maybe a little bit too much value as we see but I do think that she's been like born and raised to understand that being able to help others and like contribute is really important and so as soon as she's out of the hold she's kind of like looking to have a piece of that in this new like unmoored life that she's living and very quickly she has an opportunity to fill that gap with the fire lizards because they need her and I think that there's something very appealing too about you know I think as a young reader so often you're looking for characters and for role models that are caretaking others because as a kid or as a teen you're so used to like other people just trying to take care of you all the time and so (laughs) anytime you're reading about a character who's near your age group who's like able to be responsible for other living things I think that's really satisfying I mean we see it in everything from the babysitter's club to this. There's something innately satisfying for a kid about understanding that other kids are responsible and mature enough to look out for others. Yeah, there was some book I read, and I don't remember the title of it, but it, the the image of it stuck with me, where the girl in the book took care of, um, like, animals. Like, she would go out and find, like, wounded creatures, like worms and snails, and, like, bring them home and, like, nurse them until they were better. Or, like, you know, and it kind of, she built it into this, I feel like, almost animal hospital, where oh, yeah. she took care of, like, bunnies and things. And that, exactly, that, just that image of the, the girl, like, taking care of something like that, I think that really stuck with me for exactly why you're, why you're saying. (laughs) 
So we kind of begin a few chapters of like survival mode. Menely is now kind of like the mama to these nine fire lizards and they are looking to her for food. She also has to feed herself. And there's a few chapters of her kind of like making a home for herself in this cave, figuring out her routine with her new charges, looking for food, feeding them, like keeping the peace among all of them. And what I found really interesting about this section was that it bounced back and forth between like real time with mentally with the fire lizards and what's going on back in the hold with the other humans. And I've yeah. recently read a bunch of kind of like survival-y books for the podcast. I read Hatchet quite recently. A few months ago, I read Island of the Blue Dolphins and we did Julie of the Wolves back in the fall. And so I've read a few books kind of with, you know, sort of a longer version of this period that Mentally spends just trying to survive in the cave. And what I struggle with sometimes with those books is that you don't get any conversation or human interaction or dialogue. Hatchet totally. is a good one because there's some like flashbacks to his family and that I really enjoyed. But I loved that Anne McCaffrey with this book interspersed this like survival period for mentally with some glimpses of what was going on back at home. Not only because what was going on back at home was super interesting and kind of political, but also because like it broke up these like longer passages where like for me it got a little heavy on the description of what mentally is doing to feed the fire lizards. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. I actually have a really hard time reading those survival books because I'm like a person by themselves is not that interesting to me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, like how to create food and like objects from the environment. That's just not my jam at all. So um, yeah, no, I agree. And I do think all that stuff that's going on where you get to understand the new Harper, Elgian, a little more and her yes. brother, which yes. I actually, I thought the new, I thought the brother was really cool and very, um, like, I, I kind of wish we'd seen him a little more earlier in the book. And so getting all of that was really interesting. But also even the survival parts, at least when she was, um, you know, naming the fire lizards and interacting with them and sort of figuring out their personalities, that part I, I did like, you know, I, I didn't need to know how she made a pot out of a rock. But <laughs> yes, I did like that she named them and like you said I really liked that we got a better sense of the new Harper Elgion and also Menely's brother Alemi I loved both of them like we're finally getting some likable male characters in the book <laughs> yes. finally I especially loved her brother I pulled out a quote from him where he says that he's talking to Elgion like kind of trying to help him understand mentally and they're deciding like if they're going to go out and look for her and he says I think she's alive and better off wherever she is than she would be in half circle um, he also says mentally is not stupid and she knew her teaching well enough to know what to do if she were caught out and so he is her big brother and I think again like in other books that I've read for kids you get the big brother who's constantly just writing off the younger sibling and not only is Alemi recognizing the fact that like she's probably happier wherever she is but he's also respecting her enough to be like she's gonna be fine I mean do I think that it would be smart for these people to be a little bit more proactive about looking for mentally <laughs> probably this is a fantasy book so it's fine that they're not but if they're not gonna do that I'm glad that he at least is really trusting her ability to fend for herself. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I actually, I marked that moment too, where he says mentally is not stupid with such feeling that everyone looked at him in surprise. I was like, oh, finally, I feel like this is the first moment in the book where someone defends her, you know, and it made me really like him immediately. <laughs> well, especially because he's been raised by this like super aggressive male father who's like pretty, I don't know, he's just gross. Um, and so the fact that like <laughs> Alemi has been able to rise above this toxic masculinity and like respect his sister, even though she's a younger sister and say that to Elgion, I think that was really cool of him. So I liked that for a second it seemed like they were going to team up like it felt almost like a Disney movie to me where like here's like the, <laughs> the cool guys that are going to become friends and like figure out what's really going on here I liked that a lot yeah totally <laughs> so things kind of turn rough for mentally again when she's out she's looking for food for the fire lizards because that's her whole job now and she sees that there's going to be thread falling from the sky again and as you mentioned thread is this biological thing that falls from the sky and burns anything organic that it touches and she's trying to get away from it but she's not successful and the soles of her feet are totally burned while she's running but she's picked up by a dragon rider which I remember being very taken with as a kid <laughs> being like "Ooh, these dragon riders are going to take her somewhere cool and new and different and she, they take her to Bend and Wear which is like this totally new place it's wildly different from the Seaholds and um, that in itself was interesting just to see like these very different cultures and the fact that they're all in this world of Pern 
learn, but these people are living by very different philosophies. And as you said, there's these awesome women that she's meeting that are empowered and like have these skills and importance within the society. And like they're planning for this great event with the hatchings. Like it's just a really cool and different place, a much fresher place than where Manali comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to mention too, that I had actually sort of forgotten about these books is the fact that the dragons can go between, they call it. So they can basically teleport. They can teleport from place to place around this continent. And I'm like, man, I wish I had given my dragons that. It would save a lot of travel time in my books. (laughs) Just one of the the things I least like to write is the like, la-di-da, and then three days later, they're still flying. (laughs) The journey continues. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I thought that was pretty cool. So they swoop her up and then they can instantly like pop back to Bend and Wear. Yeah, where it is so different. I, I really loved seeing the hatching and all of the excitement going on around that. And I think, although, I think that might be partly because I really remember reading other books in the series where the hatching was, like, really central. And and I, from the point of view of the kids, like, standing down there on the sand, like, waiting to impress a dragon. And that feeling is just such an exciting part of, I think, reading this series, is imagining yourself maybe about to connect with a dragon. (laughs) Yeah, it also, it reminded me of something that you would read in in Harry Potter, um, like, the preparation for the hatching. Like, that just felt sort of very Hogwarts-esque, where, I don't know, I love in Harry Potter where they're, they're preparing for these, like, big events that are so magical and like so foreign to us as readers that are muggles just like all the preparations that were happening for the hatching and the way that everybody had different roles and like it was just the biggest thing that had ever happened and they are used to I don't know I just I really like that and again like in the moment where it almost got a little too high fantasy for me like for a minute there in Bend and Ware I was like I don't know that I know what's going on I'm not sure that I understand who all these characters were for me grounding it in like this is a really cool event and everybody has a job and everybody's going to be traveling to come to the hatching to watch these dragons hatch. That's sort of what helped me ground myself back in the story. Yeah, maybe it's like the the Triwizard Tournament. Yes, exactly, (laughs) yes. Yeah, like this event that's like part of their world, but so not part of mine that has all these bells and whistles associated with it and it's just like cool to think about in terms of its scale and its glamour you know I that's kind of what brought me back into the story because I'll be honest once we got into Bend and Wear I was aware I was like this is cool it seems like really cool characters like I said I, I latched on to the really interesting women and the conversations that Menelie was having with them but I did get a little bit confused once we got to Bend and Wear just with all the new characters coming in and kind of trying to understand how everybody was connected. Yeah and you can and you get this real sense of how much is happening off in the background, um, especially, I think, with Miram when she meets another girl sort of close to her age. And I loved Miram because I loved that there was this female friendship forming and that Miram is not at all perfect. Like, she's she's kind of obnoxious in a lot of ways. But she's having, like, all these huge emotions going on. And, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't even really completely understand everything that was happening with her foster person who had just lost her dragon queen and you could tell that that was like well this is a whole separate book and I don't necessarily need to know all this. (laughs) Oh, that makes sense. Now that you say that and circling back to what you said, okay, now I sort of understand like maybe some of the things that I didn't quite understand that was meant for a much longer piece of content. Maybe that was a whole book. Okay. All right. That makes me feel better. That's all the stuff that happens in Dragon Quest. Like everything you see with Brekka, I I don't know how to pronounce her name, but the one who has lost her and like there's a long little paragraph in here explaining like the two queens that accidentally killed each other and what happened with all the others. That's very adult and that all happens in the adult series and I know especially the the scene where the little the boy impresses like saves the little white dragon from the shell is like a great moment in a different book (laughs) and then you get like his whole story and like why it's such a big deal and it is funny if I kept thinking like if you were just reading this one wouldn't you feel like you were missing something I did confirmed I did (laughs) but yeah I feel like I remember that one being a really good one the white dragon Um, And I think that was written after this, but it must have been hinted at in Dragon Quest. I don't know. She had it all (laughs) planned out. Well, of the things that stick out for me in Bend and Wear, other than the things that we've kind of already touched on with the characters and the conversations that she has and the fact that this woman wants to take her in, the fire lizards find her and everybody's amazed. All nine fire lizards finally come back to her and everybody's super impressed. And they're basically like, if you were able to impress on these nine fire lizards, then you don't belong where you come from. And she had kind of been trying to play it cool like she didn't necessarily want all of this to come out but because fire lizards are a little bit mysterious like it's a huge deal once these nine 
little dragons start circling around her and yeah. forget about it once she starts harmonizing with them like she and she didn't quite know this but she starts singing and the fire lizards start to sing with her and then it like just takes things to a whole other level yeah because she's the only one who's been able to teach her fire lizards to sing and that's like something they've never seen before they didn't know they could do that yeah and it is interesting because it makes her the, the fire lizards make her special even before they find out about her harper talent which like takes her to another level of special you know but yeah, I really, I, I remember really being excited about that, that this character, that what made her special was her, her connection to these little creatures and how she takes care of them. And I love that scene where she's, I think she's in the kitchen with Miram and outside somebody's like, whose are all of these? Like, yes. where did they come from? <laughs> yes. And you can, you can just hear the like grumpy grownups in the background being like, what is going on? And then they all arrive and they're so cute. They are cute. <laughs> I was going to say about the fire lizards, I kind of wish she spent a little more time time on all of their personalities and names because I feel like she did a great job with like beauty and lazy bones and kind of rocky and diver and a little bit mimic but then she kind of gave up with like brownie and auntie one and auntie two like come on <laughs> yeah give them real names come on right? yeah. I'm sure they have distinct personalities and would prefer to have you know their own names but yeah. <laughs> but they are so cute. They're yeah. all so lovely. Well, and Master Harper Robinson happens to be in town for the hatching. And to make a very, well, not a very long story short, but to make a story <laughs> short, he kind of tricks Mentally into singing some of her original songs and is like, oh, I knew it. I knew it was you. And he says, before you can think of any more obstacles, arguments, or distractions, because, of course, she's like, no, no, it's not me. She's still kind of playing playing it coy. He says, will you kindly bundle up my fire lizard eggs, get whatever you have, and let us be off to the Harper Hall. This has been a day of many tiring impressions. Um, so, yeah, she's going to get to go to the Harper Hall, and she's going to get to pursue what she's really good at and what she loves. And it's a win for feminism in the end, people. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. And it's so it is so very sudden, like at the end, yeah. like she's had this very long. It's true. She has this very long day with the hatching and she's super tired. And I had sort of mixed feelings about the way they trick her at the end, especially because they refer to it as a trick. They're like, oh, she's been so neatly like trapped or whatever, where she's really tired. And the, the Harper she does know at, the, at Bend and Weir comes and starts playing quietly next to her. And he's like, hey, sing this with me. And so she does. And then he's like, oh, try this one. And it's her song that she wrote, but she doesn't realize it till she's already started singing it and then they can come in and and then they get really kind and they're very like welcoming but it's interesting that they're like well we have to be gentle with her um you know we have to approach her kindly Menora clearly wants to be as caring of this child as she can be um but then they decide that that's the right way to do it <laughs> it's like by by tricking her but it works I mean she you know that way they don't have to have a whole argument where she's like no 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 I didn't I'm not the Harper you're looking for and they can be like yes you are and we appreciate you and we think you're awesome and now we're, we're gonna take you away to a shiny new place where you get to play music all the time it is a little abrupt I agree I was like going through my notes and just looking at the book itself before we got on to record today I was like trying to find the moment where he actually invites her and I was like oh it is on the last page like it's really yeah. <laughs> really wrap it up really quickly so I would have loved like maybe a few more pages just where she gets to bask in that a little bit but the point is that she gets to go and again like getting to the heart of the story I was like the point is that the girl wins and she gets mm -hmm. to pursue her talents and like forget her dad who was terrible to her so um and that way it's a very happy ending taking all of this yeah. into account Tui has coming back to this book now for the SSR podcast made you love it all the more or has it not held up for you in some way? I was relieved because I was actually a little worried like it had been so long and I'd forgotten a lot about it except for some very clear scenes like her impressing the fire lizards. I was a little worried that it was going to feel very like dated and it didn't to me like it you know there were definitely things about it that I was like oh this is the kind of science fiction I read a lot more of as a kid you know I would I would really immerse myself in, in, in these well we say high fantasy but she actually thought of it as science fiction because of the planet stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's true. If you think about, like, if you go back to the foreword, I guess it is science fiction, but that's a good And point. then, actually, one of the books in this series, I think it's Dragon Dawn, Dragon's Dawn, goes all the way back to when, like, uh, people arrived on this planet in spaceships and, like, settled it. And, like, the colonizers who originally were like, uh-oh, Thread is here. How can we, like evolve these little I think they take the fire lizards and like genetically engineer them to become dragons like I think that's 
wow. If I remember right, this was such a long time ago that I read that one. But it, that one's the most science fiction-y because they still have all their technology from the spaceships, which by this point, like thousands of years later, they've all it's all kind of gone and they've gotten back to this like more medieval society. I think partly because Thread like destroys a lot of what yeah. they had before. Yeah, so I was a little worried going back to it, but I, I still really loved it. The, the emotions that like I have about Menely and her fire lizards and just that feeling of like a girl you know, finding herself and like being appreciated by other people for what's special about her, that all still really worked for me. I really enjoyed it. I really did. And I think that I don't know how much of it I absorbed as a kid because I think I had a tendency with books like this that had so much detail and had all this world building and felt a little bit over my head in some ways. I think I had a tendency to skim a little bit and I wanted to read it for my aunt and I wanted her to be happy that I'd read the book. So (laughs) I think that I got into it so much more this time around. And I think reading a book like this for me is always a reminder that it's important to like break out of your reading shell and that at the core of every book, no matter how many other details are going on, no matter how fantasy or how sci-fi it is, there's always going to be this core character and their quest or their search for what's important to them. And they're always going to have a few relationships. So I think for me, it's always healthy to read a book like this and be reminded that like you can strip back a lot of the things that feel a little bit overwhelming and find that kind of story you're looking for. So I really appreciate that you picked this book and thank you for putting it back (laughs) on my radar. I'm excited for listeners to hear the episode too. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that if it's a good writer that they do that, there definitely is, I think, science fiction and fantasy out there where it's all plot and they don't and they spend more time on the world building and not enough on the characters. But I also do you know the author Joe Walton? She's like a Welsh author. She wrote um, a lot of books. She wrote Tooth and Claw. She wrote Among Others. Um, I know the name. I don't think I've ever read any of her books, but I've definitely heard her name. Yeah, she's amazing. And she has this whole article about how to read fantasy, Hmm. where she talks about how the more you read, the more you know what you can tune out. You know, she's like, it's like people who've read a lot of historical fiction and they're like, well, I don't need to know exactly what the shillings and the half pence and how they all add up to each other. Um, Or like which carriages are which back in the old days. You know, it's like someone reading a science fiction book is like, I don't need to know how the hyperdrive works. It's just a hyperdrive and it gets you places fast. <laughs> like, whereas a lot of new readers to that are like, well, I need all the details, you know, sort of what you were talking about, reading it as a kid, feeling like you needed to understand all the details of the world building. Um, I do think that, that you know, she's, she talks about how the more you've read of, of that kind of book, the more you can kind of set those those aside if you need to, or you're used to sort of the language of it. So I don't know, it's been, but it has been a long time for me since I've read any of these, and it's been it's been really fun to go back to it. <laughs> well, I'm going to find that article, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Before I let you go, Tui, are there other books that you've been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? I would love to get links to those in our show notes, too, so that we can build up those TBR lists for everyone. Sure. Is it okay if there's like a million of them? Uh, yeah, we... <laughs> We love a good book recommendation, and they can be YA, adult, whatever works. Okay. Um, well, so the one adult book I'll mention um, is probably one of my favorites of all time, and it is by Joe Walton, um, and it's called Among Others. It's told all in diary entries, and it's actually, like, a little bit autobiographical. It's sort of, um, you know, her growing up in Wales in, like, the, I want to say 50s or 60s, um, and, like, all the books she was reading, but it's also not entirely autobiographical because it's about a girl whose twin has just died because they were trying to stop their evil mother from taking over the world with like evil magic. (laughs) And so it's all about the aftermath. It's not about that moment of defeating the mom. It's about what she does afterwards and how she survived and like sort of her survivor's guilt and also how she comes back to the world through the books that she's reading as a book person like it's really beautiful it just makes you feel like oh this is someone I totally understand and this is how I think about books too I've actually seen her talk about it at a few events and it's just it it makes it more magical every time I hear her talk about it I think it's really brilliant that sounds great (laughs) yeah it's really wonderful and then in sort of the younger categories I read a book earlier this this year or maybe at the end of last year but it came out earlier this year um, because I was blurbing it called Sal and Gabby Break the Universe by Carlos Hernandez and it is hilarious it is one of my favorite books that I've gotten to read in a while like it is a boy who can reach into sort of the multiverse like other dimensions and bring things over and so it can be little things like whenever he is you know he's lost something he can reach into another universe and bring it over there but it's also he keeps accidentally bringing his dead mother back from other universes like where she's still alive which is really awkward for his dad who is now remarried. <laughs> oh wow, yeah, that sounds that sounds like darkly funny and I love it. 
<laughs> it's brilliant. That one's really fun. One that I thought of actually while I was reading Dragon Song is called The Bells by Danielle Clayton. That's a YA book, which also does a lot of amazing world building, but great character stuff at the same time. And instead of fire lizards, they have little teacup pets. So they have like teacup elephants and teacup rhinoceroses. And <laughs> oh, that's cute. Yeah, it's super adorable. So I like that one. Thank Do you, you ever read graphic novels? I don't, and I need to start. I no, know I need okay. to start. My kids are super into them, so we have like a t- like a whole stack of ones, and some of them I just think are are amazing. And so one that we're reading right now together is the new book by Shannon Hale called Best Friends, which is a sequel to her other one, which is Real Friends. Um, and I haven't so I haven't finished it yet, but I think it's really good. And an older one in that category, I promise is my last one, is called Check, Please by Ngozi Ukazu. And that's much, it's definitely for an older audience because there's a lot of content, (laughs) I guess you could say. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's adorable. (laughs) It's about like a kid or a college kid who is on the hockey team at this like, uh, at this university. And but he's like this really sweet, he loves to bake and he's got, he does a video blog and he's super cheerful and he's in love with one of the boys on his team. And it's really, really cute. So I would recommend that one too. That does sound cute. I've been getting recommendations for graphic novels lately. I've been getting a lot of people saying, like, you got to get into it. A lot of people requesting that we do some graphic novels on the podcast. So I think the time <laughs> may, may be approaching that um, I'm going to start to explore that genre. So thank you for that recommendation. I'm going to include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to Dragon Song and, of course, a link to your books, Wings of Fire. Tui, it was so nice talking with you. Thank you for your time, and thank you for sharing your enthusiasm for this series. Um, oh, it really, like, totally change the way I think about the books just to talk with you about them. So thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.